Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of how to avoid a climate disaster by Bill Gates, the solutions we have and the breakthroughs we need. Big bad Bill Gates, one of the richest blokes in the world. Obviously, everybody knows about him starting up Microsoft. And of course, with his uh, wife, now soon to be ex-wife, through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, turning a lot of their work towards charity and philanthropy. So he has spent a whole bunch of his resources trying to solve some of the bigger problems of the world, which led uh, to him writing this book because he sees climate change as one of the biggest threats that we face in the not-too-distant future. Bill Gates says that over the last couple of years, he's been convinced of three things. One, to avoid climate disaster, we need to get to zero emissions. Two, we need to do that with the tools that we already have, things like solar and wind. We need to make those things faster and better and smarter. And thirdly, we need to create and roll out brand new breakthrough technologies to get us the rest of the way down to zero. So in this episode, we're going to lay out the problem, explain why we need to get to zero emissions, outline why it's going to be so hard, and finally provide some possible solutions to the five biggest sectors that are causing the most emissions. When it comes to climate change, there are two numbers that we all need to know. The first is 51 billion and the second is zero. Now, 51 billion is how many tons of greenhouse gases the world typically adds into the atmosphere every year. Mate, it's a pretty arbitrary number, but I know a million's a lot and a billion's a thousand times more than yeah. a billion and then 51 <laughs> billion's a bloody lot. 51 times more than that, yeah. <laughs> so we need to get from this ridiculously high number and zero is what we need to aim for. So this is to stop warming and avoid the worst effects of climate change. And these effects are going to be very bad. And humans, we need to stop adding greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere. Simple as that. That sounds very difficult to get from 51 billion down to zero. And it sounds difficult because it is going to be difficult quite uh, quite simply. The mm. world uh, has never done anything quite this big. We've never taken on this massive challenge of getting from 51 billion uh, every single year down towards zero every single year. It's such a big project that every country will need to change its way and virtually every activity in modern life is going to change from growing things to making things to getting around from place to place. All of those different activities are going to have to change. So a bit of context, how much change needs to happen. Quite recently, we had an event that did change the world. In 2020, we had the novel coronavirus spread around the world. Anyone who knew the history of pandemics wasn't too surprised and Gates, he was probably one of these people because he called it out in a TED talk a long time ago. Yeah, it was what, like five or six years ago. He said how vulnerable the whole world was to a, a pandemic like this spreading around the world. And then a lot of people took that clip uh, at the start of the <laughs> pandemic and say, well, Gates knew exactly how to do this all along. So maybe he was in on it. He, he could have been. You never know <laughs> with Gates, mate. I don't think he was, but that's what a lot of people thought. Wait, where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> But the reduction, right? So out of all that, whether it felt like the world stopped, right? Yeah, everything stopped. Yeah, no, no, everyone just stayed at home. No one was going around. No one was traveling from country to country. It definitely seemed like a mm. big impact. Yeah, well, your Uber Eats emissions goes up, I'd yeah. say, but then you're traveling <laughs> to work emissions and a whole bunch of other stuff goes down. But with all those reductions, you'd think, like my first guess would be what twenty, thirty percent reduction at in least, emissions. Yeah. It's only five percent. Mm. So millions of people died. Tens of millions of people were put out of work, and yet the only reduction in greenhouse gas emissions was 5%. And 5%, that, that's you know going from 51 down to like 48 or 49 billion, which is a step in the right direction, but it's nowhere near zero, obviously. And in fact, Gates says, what's remarkable isn't how much emissions went down, but how little. If the whole world stopped, if there was no planes flying around, less people driving around, uh, all the big infrastructure projects, you, it felt like we're all put on hold, but emissions only dropped by 5%. 
So that just shows how much change we need to make to actually get towards 0%. We need all sorts of new seeds and innovations to let us people in the developed world get to zero emissions, but also make sure those in, in the poorest countries in the world can get access to electricity just so they don't have to suffer unnecessarily. Yeah, most certainly. We need to channel the world's passion and scientific IQ into developing the clean energy solutions we have now, but also to invent new ones so that we can stop adding greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere. So, Bill, he admits that he's an imperfect messenger on climate change. He's calling it out, and rightly so. Like <laughs> He's probably, well, he does have his big jet plane and flying yeah. around. He's probably munching on dirty burgers all the time, and uh, <laughs> he's up to all sorts of stuff, isn't he, old Bill? Well, there's, it depends how deep into this sort of stuff you get. But there's, You've gone pretty deep. There's been some videos going around about how well he knew Jeffrey Epstein, saying he didn't know him too well, but then it found out he did know him too well. Then Bill said he's never been on his plane. Turns out he did go on his plane. Maybe he went to one of his island retreats and got up to no good, but who knows? That's just rumors. Mate, when there's smoke, there's fire, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows? If well, you know, apparently, you know. Uh, if, you get, if you dig even deeper than that, there's, uh, I remember hearing once he's a reptile or something. Yeah. <laughs> You heard about that one? I have, I have heard that he's yeah he's one of those very few you know reptilians who had taken over the world and uh, you know also I heard he was spreading you know the injections the the uh, vaccines is sort of part of his plot to control everybody in the what, whole to world. What become reptiles? No, just to control everyone. Just implants okay. and microchips. Well, if anyone's gonna be implanting shit, it'd be it'd be your big billionaire. You elite, think so? Wouldn't it? You think so? But I guess more seriously, what he's saying is that look, he's he's flying around on a private jet. If he's gone to this massive climate change. Uh, meeting with all the biggest leaders in the world, but he flew there on his private jet. It's a bit of a mixed message there, spewing out all those emissions into the air. But Bill says that he's trying to do what he can to offset uh, all his his carbon footprint. He's mm. trying to invest in zero carbon tech. He's put more than a billion dollars into researching the approaches that he hopes will get the world to zero emissions. Mate, I'm a, there's quite a few imperfect messages. I'll be one of them. I had a <laughs> conference I could speak at, you know, uh, what not last year, the year before, and some people did it online, but... I chose to fly in, mate. Talk about sustainability from Melbourne to Sydney. Acts like the big dog. You know, if you're if you're truly about your sustainability idea, then you probably just stay at home and not not get those extra emissions in and, and taxis to the airport and whatnot. So the reason we need to get to zero emissions is pretty simple, and this is the greenhouse gas emissions. They trap heat and they cause the average surface temperature on Earth to go up. So the more gases that are in the air, the more the temperature rises. So, you know, you got greenhouse gas emissions in the air. Um, I remember old science, I think when you a certain wavelength of particle, I'm going out on a limb here, <laughs> but when that goes up in the atmosphere, it causes like an atomic jump at the atomic level. So that it um, takes in the particle and then it emits it at a random um, array. So whereas going directly out of the atmosphere, there's a 50% chance it's actually going to fly back down and uh, there's certain elements and compounds that have this sort of wavelength where they have the atomic jump of the electron. So CO2 is one of them, but also is water. So it's a negative feedback loop there. So as more ice gets melted from the polar ice caps and then goes into the water in the oceans, there's more uh, water that's going to be in the air and doing more atomic jumps and whatnot. Okay, you've lost me on the atomic jump, but I'll take your word for it. I don't I know if it's atomic jump the... or not. That just brings it <laughs> up. But, yeah. I remember just seeing like the, the arrow going down, bouncing off the earth, going back out, but then it hits the yeah, roof. There's a reason it hits and come back down. Yeah. yeah. I just remember the very basic like primary school version. It sounds like you've gone to the university level. Another important thing about the greenhouse gases is, is that they stay in the air a bloody long time. So carbon that we spit out today 
One fifth of that is going to still be in the atmosphere in 10,000 years. So 20% of it is hanging around for 10,000 years. So that's a bloody long time. Mm. Yeah, it's a lot longer than we're going to be around here. Certainly. So it's a pretty simple equation. Uh, the more carbon dioxide we put in the air, the hotter it's going to get. The hotter it gets, it's harder for us to survive and much less thrive. I think that's a big part is the thrive part. Like humans, we could probably cop it and there's a book we can do later, that The Precipice. Um, climate change might, might not be an extinction event for the humans, but it could be a very limiting factor on us thriving as a species going forward. We don't know exactly how much harm is going to be caused. There's all sorts of projections and scenarios that might uh, that might eventuate. We can't be sure, but we do know that we do have every reason to worry, mainly because there's so much greenhouse gases going into the atmosphere. It's having so much effect so far for the last couple of decades or centuries. Plus, it just remains there for so long that projection-wise, it's not looking good. Yeah, so a difference between one or two degrees doesn't seem like a whole lot of trouble. Like right now in the middle of winter, I'd almost click the box and say, hey, you'd let's rather, just warm it up two degrees. you a bit warmer, yeah. But, you know, that's, uh, that's a bit simplistic <laughs> because the whole world changes in very big ways. Like during the last ice age, the global average temperature was just six degrees lower than it is today. And during the age of the dinosaurs, the average temperature was just four degrees higher. And at that temperature, there was crocodiles living in the Arctic Circle. And in the ice age, there was ice everywhere. So that mm. 10 degrees band um, changes the whole environment everywhere by a factor of, say, 100% almost. Yeah, I think one of the graphs in this book Bill was talking about, I think we've already got to one degree, haven't we, in terms of average mm. temperature across the world. And then the, a lot of the scenarios are predicated on this average of two degrees increase, which is where a lot of the bad shit's going to start really ramping up. So all this extra heat causes variations in the climate change. We can predict broad trends, like there will be more hot days or the sea level will go up, but we can't blame climate change for any specific events. So say the bushfires in Australia, which was what, late um, 2019, I think, you know, you can't say climate change caused that event. So that's probably factually wrong because there could have been uh, a, just a lower variance of what the bushfires were and that'd probably be right. So you can't say one specific event is caused by climate change. But what you can say is that having climate change increases the odds of things like this happening. So it increases the chances of wild hurricanes happening. It probably increases both the number and the intensity of things like this happening or things like the bushfires, as you say. You can't say this bushfire was caused by climate change, but you can say that the odds of having bushfires has increased. And what else do we know? So for one thing, when it does hit us, there's going to be a lot more hot days and uh, not everyone's going to suffer from more hotter and humid days. You know, people probably close to the equator are going to real cop it where it's already too hot. And there'll be other parts of the earth where it raises and it's not going to be too much of a comparative issue to what it is now. The hotter climate, as we did say, could lead to more frequent and more destructive wildfires. So in California, for example... Since the 1970s, the occurrence of, of wildfires has actually gone up five times and also the fire season is getting longer and getting more dangerous because of the extra warmth that's sort of sucking the moisture out of the trees. It's making the forest drier and therefore more vulnerable to wildfires. So there's a whole range of different climatic events that's going to happen, but the obvious one that we all hear about is how the sea level rise is going to happen. And this is partly because the polar ice is melting and partly it's because seawater, it actually expands as it gets warmer. So although the rise of a few feet by you know the year 2100, again, that doesn't seem like too much, but the rising tide will affect some places a lot more than others. So obviously some of the island nations are going to be disproportionately impacted.
There were two young fish swimming along. They happened to run into an older fish who was swimming the other way. He nods at the young whippersnappers and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish swim for a little bit and look to each other and say, What the hell's water? Hmm. Yeah. Well, if you're in water all day, then you don't know what it is. And um, Well, the point of this story <laughs> is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, and important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. They're just too close to the eyes that you can't see it. And fossil fuels are a bit like that. They're so pervasive that it can be hard to grasp all the ways in which we really need them and the ways that greenhouse gases really help our lives. I really like that story or that analogy. It was a David Foster Wallace thing. This is water, but I, I don't know. I guess it's stretching a little bit to apply it to this, but I guess I guess he can sort of shoehorn a little bit and it works because he's saying that it's just all around us and we often can't even tell. Like, let's just think about this morning. If you brushed your teeth, then the toothbrush was probably contained plastic, which is made from petroleum, which is a fossil fuel. If you ate your breakfast, your toast and your cereal, it was grown with fertilizer, which releases greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, if they were harvested by a tractor, it was made of steel. It was probably run by petrol or gas or some kind of other thing, which is releasing carbon. If you had a burger for lunch, obviously raising that beef, the cows are going to fart and burp and take dumps that is going to release methane. And also whatever went into that bun that you were eating as well was also grown with fertilizer. Yeah, so it's for, for breakfast. You might have had a bit of meat in there. <laughs> I have had a bit. But maybe not a burger. You may have had an egg and bacon burger or something. <laughs> and uh, like as you're getting ready for work, you get your clothes on and you, they might contain cotton. And again, fertilizer and they're harvested. Or polyester made from petroleum. If you got a, a car on the way to work, then uh, you might have had a, had a gas or petrol-powered car, which obviously has emissions. But if you took an electric vehicle, that's also got a lot of emissions because how you power your car, if you're using the electricity grid, it's got a lot of fossil fuels in it. So places like Melbourne, we've got one of the dirtiest electricity grids in the world, so it's probably worse than the actual petrol cars in many ways. If you took the train, it went along tracks made of steel and tunnels made using cement, which again is made by fossil fuels and the carbon is the byproduct. If you live in an apartment building, it's going to be surrounded by cement. If it's made from wood, the lumber that was cut and trimmed was using some kind of gas-powered machine that was made of steel that was was used to chop it down. If you're using aircon or heating, then that's using a fair amount of energy just to change the temperature of your room. In other words, fossil fuels are absolutely everywhere. Absolutely. Like a young little fish, not knowing that uh, just swimming in the ocean, fossil fuels are everywhere you look. Anything you look at, it was created using fossil fuels. And it's just the truth that these fossil fuels help raise the standard of living, which is going up around the world, particularly in the developing countries. There's a rising demand for cars, roads, buildings, refrigerators, computers, and air conditioners. And as a result of this standard in living, the amount of energy used per person is just going in one direction, that's upwards. Also, with projections of the population around the world set to reach 10 billion before the end of the century, that's a big jump. That's like an extra 40% of the world's population. If there's 40% more people, that means there's 40% more energy required. That means there's 40% more food required. All these things are heading in the direction of more and more emissions. And it'll be immoral and impractical for us to just stay here with our air-conditioned rooms and our nice clothes and eating whatever food we want around the world to try and stop the people on other parts of the world climb the economic ladder and improve their standard of living. We can't expect poor people to stay poor because rich countries are emitting too many greenhouse gas emissions. Instead, we need to make the low-income people climb the ladder without making climate change worse somehow. So there's a lot of issues, but thankfully there's a couple of things we can do about it. 
one path is adaptation. So that's trying to minimize the impact of the changes that are already here and the things that we know are coming. Or the second path is mitigation. And so that's trying to stop adding greenhouse gases to try to avoid this disaster. To understand the solutions of all the issues we're about to outline, first we need to find out how much it's going to cost and understand this concept of the green premium. So let's take an example. You've got jet fuel, which you use to fly from, say, one city to another. Let's say it costs $2.22 per gallon. And this is your classic greenhouse gas emitting fuel. But then you've got this advanced biofuel for jets, which can be used for $5 and $35 a gallon. So the difference between the $2.22 between the dirty fuel and the $5.35 green fuel is the green premium. So the difference being $3.13 in this case is a green premium of more than 140%. So this green premium is the effective cost that it would be imposed if you were to switch from a greenhouse gas emitting energy source to zero carbon emitting source. So basically you're paying an extra 140% to have jet fuel go to zero emissions. So it's like a it's a pretty standard. There's a pretty decent whack. Mm. Imagine if you were used to paying three hundred bucks to fly to the next city. Now all of a sudden you've got to pay seven hundred bucks. Uh, that's a fair jump in price. Absolutely, not most people wouldn't choose to do that, mm. and in a sense, rightly so, because there are some things that are much lower hanging fruit in terms of the green premiums. In some cases, it actually can be negative. The green premium, so where going green is cheaper than sticking with fossil fuels and say, going to renewable energy, particularly in the day without the need for storage, is something that's clearly cheaper. So by figuring out sort of the the green premiums from all the big zero carbon options, we can start to have some more realistic conversations. Obviously, there's the idealistic conversation of, hey, let's just get everything to zero. But by calculating the green premium, we're taking into account the economic reasons and some of the more, I guess, real world reasons to think, okay, well, which thing should we be tackling first and in what order? Yeah. And you might start asking, like, how much are you willing to pay to go green? Like, actually, there for your, your, your flight from Melbourne to Sydney, you're probably not going to pay 700 bucks over 300. But you know, you might be happy to pay, say, for an extra dollar for your coffee in the morning or something mm. like that. So, the realistic question about how much you're willing to pay. And what follows on from that is you might start looking at what zero carbon options should we be deploying right now? And the obvious answer, of course, is that we start with the things that have got the lowest green premium because they're the things that it's it's either going to cost less and, you know, some might be negative or it's going to cost only a slightly a little bit more to get us to the green version. And of course, we also need to be thinking around the whole world, like the green premium in, in one country might be different to the green premium in another country. We want to be driving down those green premiums on every different area all over the world. Yep. So right now, the solutions are in the lowest, but at some stage, we need to get to the things like your jet fuel, which are just way too high for people to do. And this is where we should be focusing all of our research and development spending um, for early investors and best inventors, just so that 10, 20, 30 year horizon, we start getting the green premiums down for these other industries also. So what Big Bad Gates does next is he goes through the five biggest sources of greenhouse gas emissions and tries to look at a couple of potential solutions for each to bring down those green premiums to give us a path to get to zero emissions. So we're going to go through electricity production. We're going to go through how we make things like plastic, steel, and cement. We're going to go through agriculture, so growing plants and animals. We're going to go through transport, getting around, your planes, trucks, cars, and cargo ships. And then we're going to look at keeping warm, so the heating and the cooling and refrigeration.
The first emitting sector we'll look at is electricity. So how we plug in, we need to look at, and this is 27% of the 51 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions each year. We're in love with electricity. He says it again, similar to those fish in the water. We don't even realize how much we're using it. The constant street lights, the air conditioners, the computers, the TVs that always work. You flick a switch and the light comes on. It's incredible how much electricity is flying around. And we often don't even... We don't even realize it. The only time we do is if there's a big storm that comes mm. through and your electricity gets knocked out for a night. That's when you realize how important electricity is. Did that happen to you last week? No, I, I, there was a big storm here, but I, I survived it. Yeah, yeah, same here. It's absolutely, it is magical if you think about it. You can just simply turn a switch and um, pretty much anyone in a well-off country, the lights just magically appear on and it costs almost nothing. Like a 40-watt light bulb turned on for an hour costs you about half a cent. So it's free, essentially. I, man, I remember my parents are always into me about turning lights off. Next time go, I'm mate. just going to say half a cent. I'll give you half a cent to keep it on for for the next hour. Yeah. In fact, I'll give I'll give one more personal story. There was one time upstairs I left the light on, mm. and mum was mum was very pissed off. So she went upstairs to turn the light off, and on the way upstairs tripped and broke her toe. So she's saying it's my fault because I left the light on that she broke her toe. So I, so message out there: turn the light off. Turn the light off if you want to save one cent. Really, yeah. <laughs> if you want to save one cent or a broken toe, then turn the light off. So electricity has been found to it is 200 times more affordable in 2000 than the year 1900. And the US it spends only 2% of its GDP on electricity. So it's an amazingly low number. And it's probably similar in Australia. So the amount of political airtime electricity gets, it's as a fraction of what our overall costs are. It's not a hell of a lot. And it's important to note that we are speaking from a, a position of privilege where we flick the switch and the lights come on. Uh, Gates says that in sub-Saharan Africa, less than half of the population has this kind of reliable electricity. So less than half of the population is able to access electricity in the same way we do. He says that a simple task for us, like charging your phone, you reach over, plug it in, and it charges in a couple of hours. For somebody in sub-Saharan Africa, they have to walk to the local store and then have to pay uh, a fair whack of their weekly salary just to go to the store to plug it in to charge their phone because they don't have access to this sort of thing at home. And of course, the goal is to get everybody to have access to this same sort of thing. So when we're bringing people in those positions into using more electricity, if we're doing it the way we're currently doing it, that means a lot more greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a big challenge to change all of our electricity grids to become green. But the good news is that we can eliminate most emissions from electricity with just a small green premium, right? So we're paying it only a tiny bit extra. So the premium in this case is the additional cost of getting all of our power from non-emitting sources, including wind, solar, nuclear power, and coal and natural gas-fired plants if their plants were equipped with the carbon capture kind of storage mechanisms. Yeah, he's saying electricity is so cheap because uh, fossil fuels are so cheap, but actually a lot of these things like as, like wind and solar – a lot of the times, it's actually cheaper to use those things. So that's why the green premium on electricity is so low. So oil and coal and greenhouse gas emitting electricity, they seem so cheap is because one third of the costs are due to the upfront capital expenditure. And you know a lot of people don't take that into account when looking at the life cycle costs. And also you don't take into account the externalities Correct. of you know, when, they, when they're emitting stuff, there's a cost that comes with that as well that isn't captured in the price. And sun and wind have the obvious problems that they're intermittent sources, meaning they don't generate electricity 24 hours of the day like your baseload generating coal uh, would. And we don't want power just every now and then when the sun's mm. shining or the wind's blowing. We want it all of the time. So if solar and wind represent a big part of our electricity mix, 
and we want to avoid outages, we need to find options when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. So we need to store this excess energy in batteries and this is where all the innovation we need to take place and for the green premium to reduce so it can be competitive or even better than fossil fuels. So that was electricity. There's some obvious paths there, obvious but not easy. So there's ways that we need to get some storage and we need to solve some of those other big problems. The next big thing we're going to look at is how we make things. So making things is 31% of our 51 billion tonnes per year. So if you picture yourself, say you're in Melbourne, you drive across the Westgate Bridge or if you're in San Fran, you're driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, they're engineering masterpieces. They're miracles that you can take enormous amounts of heavy vehicles across that bridge every single day and it doesn't fall down, which is pretty much every time you drive across that, you're thanking who are these engineering geniuses. But of course, they were built using concrete and steel. Yeah, you don't have to look hard to see the miracles that concrete and steel are providing all around you. It's rust-resistant, rot-proof, non-flammable, and this is why it's part of most buildings, right? So if you look at a city, it's just everywhere. It's an absolute concrete uh, jungle. And even if you think of uh, hydropower, which is a a good non-emitting way to get electricity, well, you actually need a bit of concrete and steel to build those dams. So concrete and steel is a little bit like electricity. We're simply just not going to give them up. If anything, we're going to need a lot more of these materials as the world's population grows and get richer. So the issue is just fundamentally in the chemical reaction of both. So if you get steel, you need to separate oxygen from the iron and add a tiny bit of carbon. So use actually coal to get the iron oxide, strip off the oxide, and uh, with that, you can have CO2. With cement, it's a similar chemical reaction where you're using heat to get the limestone and change the limestone into clinker. So in both cases, there's greenhouse gas emissions, a minimal theoretical limit no matter what you do. And there are, there are some options like green steel using things like hydrogen or geopolymer cements and fly ash and all these sorts of things, but you know they're a little while away still and they're nowhere near the green premium where we need them to be. And of course, you've also got cross-laminated timber, which is something the, the industry I'm in actually. And uh, this is the only material that can really replace concrete and steel for mid-rise to high-rise buildings above 10 storeys high and can completely replace them out. So making our steel, our concrete, our plastic, all these things that we need is 31% of our annual emissions. Big Bill, he's got some solutions here. He says one solution is we need to electrify every process possible. He says that's going to take a lot of innovation. He says we can also get that electricity from a power grid that's been decarbonized, which is going to require a lot of innovation. We can use carbon capture to absorb the remaining emissions. Again, a lot of innovation. Or we can use materials more efficiently. And guess what? Lots of innovation required. So these are all things that we have to do. But as Big Bad Bill is saying, we're going to need a lot of innovation. We're going to need a few geniuses trying to work out how to do these in a non-carbon emitting way. Next up, we're looking at how we grow things. And this is 19% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And this is not just carbon dioxide. We're also emitting things like methane and nitrous oxide, which are equivalent of more than 7 billion tonnes of CO2. So unless we do something to curb these emissions, this number is just going to keep going up as we continue to feed the global population as they're changing their diets as the world is getting richer. Bill, I think he enjoyed writing this this chapter. He was like a little bit of a kid. He got to say fart and burp a lot and uh, and poo. He was saying that there was a there's a billion cattle 
in the world that are raised for, for beef and dairy every year. And those billion cattle eating lots of grass through their four stomachs. They're making a lot of methane that they're burping out or, or farting out. Also, their, their turds decompose and release a lot of greenhouse gases. You're saying that all these things are just like adding more and more and more. It's not just cows, obviously, pigs, chickens. All these things are putting massive amounts of emissions. He says just cow burps alone is 4% of the annual emissions. Mm, there's some substitutes out there for animal meat. Like I had a Lord of the Fries burger accidentally um, <laughs> a couple of months back and I was blown away by how tasty the burger was. Oh, really? It was completely vegetarian or vegan. One of the two, I'm not sure. But if you go down I the route... vegan, yeah. Is it full? I think so, yeah. Wow. But if you go down the route of artificial meats, they come with a serious hefty green premium. I think it's a you know, couple of grand for... One burger, but having said that, the cost curves of these are coming down. Mm. If I think back to our episode on the future is faster than you think by Peter Diamandis and Stephen Kotler. Another big part of this agricultural sector is the obvious impacts of deforestation, you know, lighting the Amazon on fire. Every time you light a tree on fire, all the carbon that it captured uh, over its life is then released back into the atmosphere. So you're back to where you started. Obviously, we can plant trees and they're going to grow and capture carbon along the way. Bill's saying that's going to obviously take a hell of a lot of time. So we want to, the first thing is stop chopping down the trees that are already there. So the solutions for growing things is simply eat less meat or eat the substitutes. And as you said there, Ash Joe, stop cutting down the trees and uh, changing the the land from forests to some sort of agriculture. Mm -hmm. I think the fourth, are we up to the fourth? I think it's the fourth. How we get around transportation. Interesting thing here that uh, if you look at petrol, gallon per gallon, uh, petrol or gasoline, it's actually cheaper than bottled water, soft drink, yogurt, honey, laundry detergent, uh, maple syrup, or some tasty passion pop or two buck chuck. Yeah, two buck. Well, it costs two or three bucks. I don't know if it still does the passion. I'm sure it's not <laughs> legal anymore because <laughs> that was bad shit. It's just marketed just for your teenagers who can't <laughs> afford to get drunk, and it was made sweet enough that you could guzzle it down and get blind. But it's unbelievable to think that these things are cheaper than petrol. So this mm. is how cheap we have have our fuels today. And because it's so cheap, it's going to be hard to move away from it. If you just think that uh, petrol, it's got more power in it than dynamite, plus it's cheaper than bottled water or yogurt, it's no uh, surprise that we're using it the way we are. So it's a pretty amazing material, but for us to wean ourselves off this, uh, like a few of them, we need to start electrifying all of our transport. So we need electricity to run all the vehicles we can and alongside that, electrify the grid with green and renewable energy so then we're pumping renewables through our whole system. The fifth one that we want to talk about is how we keep cool and how we stay warm. So your heating, your cooling, your refrigeration, these things add up to 7% of our annual emissions. So the worldwide electricity demand for cooling and heating is going to triple by 2050. And at that point, air conditioning will consume more electricity than just China or India yeah. themselves. <laughs> that's, that's a hell of a lot of uh, electricity just for this one source. And if you're uh, starting to see a trend, the solution here, we're well, using electricity. So in order to get this electricity to be zero emitting, we need to decarbonize the power grid, getting out electricity from these more green energy sources or use energy more efficiently. So our task is simple. We've got currently 51 billion tons of greenhouse gases that we're emitting every year and we need to get it down to zero. So it's simple. It's not necessarily <laughs> I was wondering where you're going to put the uh, disclaimer sim- on simple. There's a, there's a difference between simple and easy. Simple oh, okay. is saying, look, this is what we got to do. Easy, it's not necessarily easy. It's definitely going to be very, very hard to get there. 
Yeah, it's very difficult, mate. If you're just a human being on this planet, everything you do is emitting greenhouse gas emissions. So we need to be somewhat methodical. (laughs) (laughs) We need to be somewhat methodical. Yeah, that's right. That's how you pronounce (laughs) it. And uh, about what we choose. So the things with the lowest green premium is where we need to start. So don't worry about getting your $700 flight to Sydney or a different city when you can get a $300 one. You might just look at the things with the lowest green premium and the lowest bank for buck and just load up on those areas. And then over time, we can get the higher and higher fruit up the tree.